will one last say, quote because I, mean, I didn't say anything funny this week. This quote from Paul in his head is pretty funny. If I slip out without asking, I haven't disobeyed orders, and I will stay safe. But and I will stay in the house where it's stay, where it's safe. I'm gonna do that again because that was. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't disobeyed shit. <laughs> Cut that out one more time. All right. If I slip out without asking, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I quit. He finally quit. I didn't know yeah. if we were going to quit this episode. But we the gun. Welcome to Gom Jabber with the Mod Dweebs. This week's Melange à Trois brought to you by the Flint Water Authority and their new project, Pure Dune. Let me introduce my co-hosts. The laughter here in the back, that is Lily Brislin. Hey, nerd! You know, I always said a million deaths were not enough for Lily. (laughs) (laughs) That's all the intro. That's Alec Boyle. Alec, say something about yourself. Oh, I, you know, this is our sixth week of quarantine podcast recording, and I am scatterbrained as fuck tonight. I don't know how interesting I'm going to be, or maybe I'll be super interesting. I doubt it. And I'm just, you know, <laughs> welcome. We're happy you're here with us today. Uh, this week, we, uh, we decided to break the mold and went for four chapters instead of three. I think that's because a couple of them were very short. Not only did we break the mold by going for four chapters, we broke the mold by you, Josh, suggesting we went for four chapters. <laughs> Captain No Reedsy was like, let's extra Reedsy. Yeah, and I read them all in like the first like two days of uh, the the two week period. So now I've forgotten everything. So it's as if I read nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so really, nothing's changed. I promise. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I feel like in between, like sometime around this weekend, you and I, or maybe last weekend, it's really not going great, guys. Uh, you and I had a whole discussion we should have saved for the podcast about what happens in these chapters. You had yeah, you told me to take a week ago. <laughs> I know, you told me to take notes. I definitely did not. <laughs> well, let's, um, let's be structured and let's start with the quote and uh, the 30 second summaries. How about that, guys? That would help. All right. With the Lady Jessica and Arrakis, the Bene Gesserit system of sewing implant legends through the Missionaria Protectiva came to its full fruition. The wisdom of seeding the known universe with a prophecy pattern for the protection of BG personnel has long been appreciated, but never have we seen a condition extremist with more ideal mating of person and preparation. The prophetic legends had taken on Arrakis even to the extent of adopted labels, including Reverend Mother, Canto, and Respondu, and most of the... Help me with that one. Uh, the sh- Sharia, right? It's it's supposed to be, right? It's like a stupid fantasy hyphenation of just Sharia. <laughs> Sharia, Panoplia, Propheticus. And it is generally accepted now that the Lady Jessica's latent abilities were grossly underestimated. 
From Analysis, the Iraqi Crisis by the Prince of Zero Line. Sidebar, one of the things I've been thinking about uh, during these few chapters and the in, interim weeks and stuff is all this bitch does is write. Like, he has her <laughs> locked in a room just writing books, doesn't he? <laughs> Hey, at least right. literate, yeah. Alex. We're on we're on chapter nine, and I think we've read from nine different books she wrote. Oh my gosh, you're yeah. so right. Including a dictionary of Muad'Dib. I've never really <laughs> paid attention to Alex. She wrote a whole damn dictionary about his ass. Yeah. Uh-uh. She is and a I don't, writer. I don't think she liked him very much. <laughs> a hate dictionary? No. A dictionary spite. Uh yeah. So I mean well, correct me if I'm wrong, but this chapter was basically Jessica, a giant hall, lots of boxes, weird conversation with hubby, disagreeing over granddaddy's uh, picture, and then she meets um, the Shadow Mapes. That's the chapter, right? Yeah, most important character in the tale, except for maybe the pug. Yeah, yeah I think my 30-second summary of the four chapters we read is like, hell yeah, shout out Mapes. End of summary. That's the one word summary segment. That's the one word summary segment. Shout out, motherfucking mates. <laughs> it's true, and it's interesting, even though I've read this book sometime in the last five years, right? And even just reading it this time, I was struck anew by how badass the shout out mates is. <laughs> Remind me again of what Muppet you cast as her. I was racking my brain reading this, trying to remember. Uh, Pepe. Pepe the Crown. <laughs> I suddenly understand the McElroys and how angry they get at Justin every time he opens a can of pop. (laughs) That was offensive. Oh my god, done. Do it in two weeks. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> I thought about muting myself, but decided not to. No, that's fine. I deserved it. I lost my contact lens. Alright, well I'm gonna try to pick up right where we left off, just by getting back into how uh the main thing that struck me about the badassness of Shout Out Mates is how like there's no ambiguity in their interaction where Jessica's like this bitch will kill me. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, they met once. She walked in there pretending, or maybe also actually being the maid, but fully, not intending to, but prepared to straight up murder Jessica. First day on the job, I'm either going to be ride or die, or just die, die, die. Yeah. Or... Well, ride or die, right? I mean, it's... Booty or boot camp, ride or die. Booty or boot camp. What's it going to be, Jessica? (laughs) All right. All right. Here we are, guys. Okay. So we've landed on Arrakis. We learn a lot more about Jessica. Shout out, Mapes. Ride or die. But also, in a slight continuation of Parade of Daddies, Duke Leto is still a jerk, man. Like, I came out of this, like, why did... You know, this feels like a, just a not even uh, opaquely uh, uh, 
abusive relationship. She's just like, oh, but he's so nice and po- and private. And, and, and dick. And it, it made me wonder, like, does does Herbert think this is charming? Because <laughs> it's not. Also, right. of course, in this chapter, there's literal daddy issues also on display, right? Like, Leto gets to display his daddy issues by insisting that a painting of his dad and the head of the thing that killed him be hung in the dining room. Do we learn about that later? I had forgotten that entirely. I was like, what the hell is this? Also, the bullfighting still exists in the far and distant future? And they let dukes die in it? Uh, All of these big question marks. Well, I mean, if you want to skip all the way to the fourth chapter, my favorite part about this whole interaction, you know, is that he tells her, no, we're definitely hanging this in the, the in the mess hall. I know this is going to ruin your appetite. You get to now continue your tradition of eating by yourself in your room as you like. And then when it comes back to yeah, her thoughts, on it, like. she's like, I really wish that his dad had died sooner before he was able to actually influence Leto at any point in his life. That is a sick burn. Where she's yeah. like, I wish he had never known his father. Damn. Also, he pulls the shit where he's like, oh, you should be glad that I didn't marry you because otherwise you'd have to eat in the dining hall with me. So it's your choice if you want to go eat by yourself. I mean, I'm going to insist that this gruesome macabre uh, tableau will d- lord over our dining table every night, but you want to well, eat by so, yourself, Moody Jessica? That's fine. What are you guys' thoughts on bullheads in the dining room? Let's... Pro, hundred percent pro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, totally, totally cool. <laughs> I was just surprised the Shadow Mapes didn't know that the um, stuff on the horns was blood. I feel like that would have been right up her alley. Yeah, that was another sort of fictional misstep. I do feel like they'd have instantly known. Right? What kind of Fremen doesn't recognize 100-year-old blood when they see it? Yeah. I keep coming back to this now that I'm, like, perusing the pages about this very overt stuff about Leto stuff. This is how articulate we are this episode. Stuff about um, Leto um, stuff. That's the name of this episode. Leto stuff. Stuff about Leto stuff. And speaking of Leto stuff, is anyone else surprised that people are still wearing wristwatches? <laughs> well, there's no computers, Josh. No computers. If you had a yes, smartwatch, yeah. you might enslave other men. Oh. Oh, that's true. All right, you convinced me. But what about it, Lily? Oh, so on my page, our page, because we're all reading the Ultimate Nerd Companion, my page 62, she talks about... Um, she looked at his tallness, at the dark skin, it made her think of olive groves, blah, blah, blah. But the his the face was predatory, and then a sudden fear of him tightened her breast. He had become such a savage. And I, yeah, just this, like, very real fear. Not a, like, vague, like, oh, I don't want to upset him. or But just, like, oh, dude is, dude, I don't know. What is he yeah. capable of? Her, Herbert's definitely mm-hmm. leaking some... Uh personal stuff into the text at this point I think yeah and then on the, on the next page right he's like oh I indulge you shamefully it's like, oh. <laughs> right. I mean I guess again one of the things I keep coming back to is of course the like the counterbalance to all this is old dude gonna be dead 
You know, you're right, Alex. Spoilers, but yeah. He wrong. He real well, wrong. Yeah, I mean, she, she's talking about how she wishes that Leto's father hadn't gotten his, you know, his influence into Leto, and now how Leto's become a, become a savage, and we're talking about oh. Paul in his formative years. I think it all kind of comes back to, so, you know, well, I think this comes back to our big uh, off, of daddies. off mic. No, not our of daddies. Our off mic insight that you had uh, about the the very real possibility that, while not explicit in the text, the Benny Gesserit kind of planned to off Leto all along. What? Yeah. So this was Josh's deep insight, yeah. and it blew my mind. It's real good. Lay it on me, Josh. Okay, I'm gonna have to remember what I said. Me here, I'll jump straight. <laughs> here's, here's the key to it. Yui's wife was a Benny Jesser. Yeah, that's how you right. Huh. Right, and then and, and then they even talk about in this chapter, you know, the um, the what was it called? The little uh, needle thing, the Hunter seeker Seeker's or something like that. Hunter Seeker. The Hunter Seeker, and it's you know you don't know was this for Lido? Was this for Paul? Was this for both did did it matter right but um they knew that this had been planted or someone knew and and jessica finds out about it um but yeah i mean i think that well so another supporting quote right in the last actually is it in this is it in their conversation in the window when she's talking to yui in chapter two and he's reminiscing about his wife right and Mm -hmm. why she never gave him any children yeah so the thing about oh, Yui, I found yeah, pretty clearly yeah. here. So it says, so yeah, so the, the, I think the Benny Jesuits are behind Yui's betrayal um, and his conflict over not wanting to harm the Atreides uh, and all of his internal monologues about not wanting to harm his friends and how he wishes he didn't have to do this feels like the same Benny Jesuit trick that was played on, on Paul when he said, you know, how did she you know, silence my tongue here. Yeah, he's one of the voice. father about the plan. So if you think about it, you know, all of this is foreshadowing. You know, Yui says, Wait. you know, yeah. Hold on a damn second. This is giving me another new insight. Let's rewind to the chapter opening quote. It is generally accepted now that the Lady Jessica's latent abilities were grossly underestimated. Ooh. That's why they had another Benny Jesuit helping with this whole plot. No, or, no, or did did Jessica do it? Yes, yes. Or did some right in some way is Jessica? In fact, even though Thufer suspects it, and they said, "Oh no, it wasn't Thufer; it was Yui." But what if Thufer is right? What if if you if you follow the calculations? The person who it makes sense to have done this is Jessica, the Benny Jesuit Arconi. <sighs> Super deep spoiler alert. Old girls Arconi. What? Okay. You, can't, you can't drop that kind of deep spoiler. <laughs> you read the book? I don't remember it, Alec. That's the whole point of this. <laughs> That's right, but you don't know her lineage here, right? Right, but it turns out. I think fairly soon, I think Paul realizes it. Or maybe Alia. Um, but there, she, Alia, somebody is like, oh yeah, grandfather, Vladimir Harkonnen. <laughs> Good old Alia. 
Yeah, so back to the quote, you know, Yui's saying, did want to have another purpose, not giving me kids. Um, and most importantly, she loved me, certainly. You know, <laughs> this is all just essentially foreshadowing, yeah, she probably did have another purpose. And, um, you know, he was a plan. This is all essentially just another test of Paul. If they kill him, then he's, you know, no big deal. And if they don't, then it's just more proof towards, you know, what he what he is or what he could become. Yeah, and having a dead, ominous, and fraught father figure is probably a very critical piece of the formation of the... Yes, that's what these whole all these quotes are about laying out, right? Is the means yeah. by which the Benny Gesserit manipulate people. Ooh. Yep. Wow. I can't decide if I love this or hate this, right? Is this just more like, oh, women and their manipulative wild, <laughs> or is it like, or is it like, hell yeah! <laughs> well... Who would you rather develop the scientific mechanism for controlling society? You know, a bunch of women for whom it unfortunately plays into these, you know, uh, Lydia-esque stereotypes? Or a bunch of math professors like in uh, Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, I'll go with Lydia. Not Is it possible Lydia. for the Benny Gesserit to manipulate each other or use the voice against each other? I think so. I think we even have some evidence of um, RBG using that against Jessica, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many examples here. People saying that they want to do something or they want to say something or they don't want to do something. Oh, right. And it may or may not be physically restricted from them. And there's all these times in this one where Jessica talks about how she's not going to trick Leto. But can she? Maybe oh, they didn't think... want her to. Maybe they wanted his demise to certainly not come from her directly. I think maybe there's some blocks on her because, right, like she, again, she doesn't dig into Yui even when she almost figures out, right, what's going on. And they, yeah, I think part of the clear evidence in these chapters is she could totally control Leto if she wanted to. Leto's not that bright, <laughs> right? Like, he is very clearly an animal under the BG definition, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, savage. Yeah. Okay, so then, yeah, then this is all about, like, what is the bull? So, you know. <laughs> what is the bull, guys? Right? Is it Arrakis? Is it the Benny Gesserit? Is the Harkonnen who's ultimately goring old Dookie? Yeah. Well, right. So, I mean, I think in this sense you say the Harkonnens are the bull, but, right, maybe the old Duke got killed by a, right? Because it is weird. Why the hell did they let the old Duke get into a sand pit with a bull and get his ass gored? Unless there was some <laughs> other engineering going on there, right? And they say, right. oh, All right. Over, right. this has happened for a thousand years. 10,000 years. The deep conspiracy shit. We can follow this for the rest of the episode. I think this is productive territory. We have planted the seeds. I'm sure we'll revisit this <laughs> again. Massive I'm concern. deeply intrigued. This has never occurred to me before. Uh, but All it right, let's move on to Chris Knives. So should we talk about, what should we talk about? Chris Knives? Chris Knives, yep. Ooh. Is it finally a penis metaphor you're okay with, Lily? <laughs> Well, the chapter, start, the chapter starts with Lady Jessica talking about how her, um, well, she's got, like, throbbing homesickness. <laughs> <laughs> the key word was maker. 
Maker? Maker. <laughs> I need to step back half a second. The one quote that we haven't talked about that I feel like is best best dealt in the section earlier um, is on the page 65, which is, um, you know, somehow Jessica placates him and oh, Duke Leto says, you must teach me someday how you did that. He said, the way oh, yeah. you thrust your worries aside and turn to practical matters, it must be a Benny Desert thing. It's a female thing, she said. <laughs> yeah, I did want your feedback on that. <laughs> yeah. I kind of want to think, like, that is not what we would normally stereotypically or, like, like, heteronormatively attribute to women. Um, So I just, I am surprised by how many of these moments of more critical gender play that Herbert has, right? It's a female thing to just get a, you know, just get to business, you know? Don't worry about it. We got to get, we got to keep it moving. So I just, I like that quote. So this is other ways to think about these chapters is sort of like welcome to a rackus bitch where not only <laughs> straight out the gate uh, I'm getting that as a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like ride or die. <laughs> and then the hunter seeker comes for Paul and then everyone's trying to kill him and they realize that like as much as they had these high and mighty colonialist ideas about Arrakis, you know, there's some quote I'm missing it where they, he's like, We've got it. See banks, we can make of this planet whatever we want. And Arrakis is not having it. And all the talk about, you know, and how much the and this is where some of the like um environmental ethos comes hard into play with and we were talking about water right shout out to flint water authority for sponsoring us <laughs> but you know the date palms and, and water is a display of wealth and so i think uh, i think this is the rude awakening of the atreides family to arrakis and not just the harkonnens which they thought were going to be their biggest problem but mm-hmm. sort of and, them and as colonial like figures into this oh. quote here about about the Argonans, um, which is basically where um, they say that any you know who who's our friend and anyone who hates the Arconans, right? That was essentially the the quote. If I could find the exact one, which is perfectly setting up um, Jessica to not suspect Yui enough in the next chapter. Oh. Anyone who hates so can anyone truly can anyone from this place truly be safe? Anyone who hates the Harkonnens. You may even want to keep the head housekeeper the shout out Mapes. Um, shout out Jessica said a Fremen title. I'm told it means well dipper, a meaning with rather important overtones here. Um, so that was an interesting thing. Any thoughts on on well dipper before um, we talk about Jessica's appearance? Well, I just thought that whole passage was interesting because like. That's a blatant miscalculation, <laughs> right? Like so, so, so blatant. It foreshadows uh, a major problem, right? Yeah, like two paragraphs later, Shadow Mapes is ready to poison Jessica. <laughs> and then one chapter later, you know, Yui's telling her this whole sob story about how he hates the Harkonnens. So, yeah, you know, it's really. Oh yeah, uh, literally. Yeah, everyone who hates the Harkonnens then tries to kill an Atreides. Yeah. A lot of these lines, and this is not a one world collide segment, but I am I am in book ten of the Wheel of Time trilogy or trilogy. Yep. 
Wheel of Time saga, right? And yeah. so the what comes of not lying and not being able to lie. And so that whole exchange where you is very careful to basically only tell the truth mm-hmm. and all of the deceit and deception that you can get away with, with telling the truth. So, I mean, and then in Wheel of Time, the witches and that, the Betty Chesaret of Wheel of Time can't lie, uh, are bound not to lie, but they're no, they're just like a, amazing manipulators of the truth. Beautiful. Um, I'm really surprised that no one came to this description of Jessica right at the beginning, since it is right at the beginning. <laughs> we yes. are not we are not achieving escape velocity this week, guys. We have not moved beyond the first five pages of the reading. <laughs> I've been holding us here in a holding pattern. We have a lot to talk about. Okay, here. Go, this is the go. longest chapter. This, yeah, this is the Josh-focused week, so focus. This is that is scary. I did not do that well. Um, I've even lost the page. Hold on. <laughs> okay, I think I found it. It's sixty, right? Well, sixty is the first page of that chapter. You're taking too long. I just want to reemphasize on page sixty-one where it talks about the day the Duke's buyers had taken her from the school, like he even come and get her himself like he's just like go oh, give me a concubine which further plays into all of this is a Benny Gesserit plot right yeah right the Benny Gesserit okay. put her in front of the buyers whoa yeah. oh whoa Lily, Lily, Lily. look at Josh's bookmarks hold those up Jesus <laughs> what is happening what I think that I can't focus act as much fake. <laughs> so so I'm not gonna lie, these these bookmarks are literally just me scanning through the entire book looking for every time uh, that we get a song from our from our good man. Oh I'm excited. Okay. Those are excellent bookmarks. <laughs> There's no actual reading or thoughts there. I'm just excited that our um, shameless shaming has motivated behavioral change in Josh, and it just further motivates me to give rafts of shit to people in the future. Thank you, Josh, for validating my approach to life. I don't think that's what did it, but yeah, sure, whatever. (laughs) Do you have a new song uh, prepared for us, Josh? No, we don't have a song for a while. Oh, okay. You're going to do them when they come up. So I did find the extended version of the last song, and so you may get a couple extra verses at some point. Oh, oh man. This will be uh, like uh, so the bear and the maiden fair from the the King Killer series. Toss a coin to your Witcher. God, uh, so awful. Did you, oh, bear um, and the maiden fair is from Game of Thrones. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I know that. I, Tinker Tanner. That's what I was thinking of. What's that from? The King Killer trilogy, uh, oh. Name of the Wind. I haven't read him. <gasps> so back to yeah, this is where we need you. Focus. Focus. What? I, I, I'm trying to find you this quote. We're useless. We are the useless duo. You are captain of this ship to this this time, man. I am. I am on it here. So Boyle, you talked about um, some lineage aspects here and they they kind of they kind of hint at some stuff so they talk about when the duke touches her 
her arm um, and admires her stateliness. And again, he wondered at her unknown ancestry, a renegade house, perhaps some blackbard royalty. She looked more regal than the emperor's own blood. Under the pressure of his stare, she turned half away, exposing her profile, and he realized that there was no single or precise thing that brought her beauty to focus. The face was oval under a cap of hair the color of polished bronze. Her eyes were set wide, as green and clear as the morning skies of Caledon. The nose is small, the mouth wide and generous. Her figure was good but scant, tall, and with its curves gone to slimness. Just like the Baron. The what? The Baron. Oh, the Baron! Kurt's got the slimness, just like him. <laughs> so what about it? Well, I was wondering if either of you had any thoughts on it. I thought it was kind of interesting that uh, you brought up, you know, her lineage, and they bring mm. up her lineage here, and um, just the way that they they disc- that he sort of eyes her and describes her. Yeah, I mean, there's a few interesting things about it, right? I mean, first off, there's the objectifying consumptive aspect of it. Second off, there's the weird, like, there's a weird dichotomy, I guess. There's a there's a risk of unreliable narrator here, almost, right? Except it's a third-person book. But, like, we're constantly mm-hmm. told how gross the Harkonnens are. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Then we have this Harkonnen described as, you know, the most beautiful object in the Duke's collection. But don't they do the same thing when they talk about Fade Rautha? Uh, the Baron thinks Fade is real hot. I don't know. We haven't gotten to anybody else's description of Fade yet, and I don't remember how they go. Well, I mean, they're Sting. Uh, I mean, try to get me to describe someone as gross. That brings me to the greatest social media find of the week, which is, there's a lot. <laughs> Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart telling his story of how he was like, oh, he's playing music. So you're in the police band? <laughs> I can't, you're in a police band? <laughs> I've always wondered about how you just carry around that giant bass all day. I mean, there was no way for me to love him more, right? There was no way. It was impossible. And then he found it, you know, and then, of course, it was when he brings me back to Dune. That was the way I could love him more. Yeah. It does make me kind of wonder, how big of a dork do you think Patrick Stewart was in 1984? <coughs> right? Was he oh, a the big... theater dork ever. Yeah, was he a big theater dork at that point in time still? I mean, because even right, if you listen, go and listen to stories of him on set on Star Trek The Next Generation for the first couple seasons, right? Like, until all those soap opera actors got him to relax, he sounds like a real dick. <laughs> I don't want to know that. I No, no, it's I, good. It's part of the great story is that he goes and works on this, like, goofy-ass make-believe space show, right, with a bunch of soap opera actors. And he almost quits after season two right and then there's rumors about that and that's why the whole board plot line comes around because basically like oh people think he might leave we can get we can make a out of this but then somewhere in season three he like bonds with everybody who's in the cast and stops being a douche interesting and then it becomes the pet the like super chill 
you know, pit bull adopting Patrick Stewart we all know and love today. Which makes me wonder, what Star Trek The Next Generation cast member introduced Patrick Stewart to weed? Because <laughs> he loves weed. He loves weed. And you know he picked it up on Star Trek. So, who did it? Will Wheaton. I think Spiner. I think Spiner, but... There's so many options here. I was going to go with the doctor. Oh. Just because it's, it's unexpected. Mm. And, like, no. she seems civilized enough where she could be like, oh, John I mean, Luke. I can't even call him Patrick Stewart. <laughs> He's just I, so, I think it's, me. so here's the thing you don't know about Where's that? the episode where John Luke gets stoned? <laughs> It's whenever he's with his, his, he's like rocking his open V-neck shirt realness playing the flute on the Pleasure Planet. <laughs> oh, yes. oh, you're talking about um, uh, when he meets Vosh, yeah, on, on Ryza. Ryza, there you go. Uh, there is a whole vast series of internet memes devoted to Dr. Crusher loving weed. <laughs> called Blazing Bev. Yeah, Blazing Bev. Oh, oh my God. Oh, it makes total sense. She is definitely who would have gotten him to smoke. Yeah. To, to I, I, I could see Gates. I mean, Gates McFadden's a dancer, right? That's her her background. Oh, Blazing Bib. Oh, I love it. What are we doing, guys? All right. Well, so, I mean, I think part of this is right. We, we've also dug pretty deep into Chapter 2 already, which is the Yui and Jessica have a weird conversation by the room, by the window. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing we haven't touched on that is another thing Josh brought up in the break, which is Yui gives Paul what is supposed to be a knockout-ass sedative. Five uh, minutes later, a robot tries to kill Paul, and no one in the whole palace goes, gee, should we check out the guy that gave him the knockout drugs? Whoa, whoa. No one, including Paul, who's like, <laughs> hey... I really did a great job not taking this sedative for you. <laughs> it's a good thing I didn't do it because I would have died. But nothing. He, he's been suspecting people in the in the last couple chapters. Nothing. Nothing triggers it, and it doesn't occur to Jessica either. It doesn't occur, after she's just had all of this suspicious conversation with him, knowing he's hiding something, and then two seconds later, her son runs into the other room holding this. Um, this device, and she, and they're like, oh, this person's clearly here in the palace. It's got a short range. Who's suspicious? Oh, not the guy that I was just suspicious of ten seconds ago. Right, not the dude literally in the next room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, her powers may have been underestimated, but well, her- there is a there is a line where Paul says Yui couldn't be controlling it, right? Because you have to be like actively controlling these things. Mm. Why? Why then? Why couldn't it have been him? Because he was like having a conversation. Oh, with Jessica in the other room. Right, and then going like, but. But that assumes that the person that wants it done couldn't have someone else do it for them. Right, and I know Lily's bored of it, but it does feed into the. Everybody's got a mini Jessica block, so they can't suspect Yui, even though Yui is the obvious. I just hate an all-encompassing conspiracy theory because it makes things so boring. He was like, "Well, better Jessica block." Well, hashtag feminazi. Just you know, it's like feminist ruined everything. I'm gonna start tagging, signing all of my tweets. Hashtag feminazi. Hashtag Benny Jessica block. But in a positive way. I'm on board. I'm on board, right? That's our new Twitter feed. Find us at Benny Jesuit Plot on Twitter. (laughs) 
I think our segment for this week actually uh, should be let's talk about all of Lily's social media finds because I do think Lily, you are killing it on the Instagram. I have managed to amass tens of followers, guys. The that's the, phenomenal. The artist, the Chris Knight you found, who like interacted with us, that was cool. Oh, that's so who, great. The guy who did the drawing of reading Dune. That that very accurate drawing of you in your <laughs> fancy dandy pants reading Dune. I continue to derive delight from it. <laughs> did you see it? No, thanks for the invite. You guys didn't. Uh, I don't. Me I didn't know you were on Instagram. Oh, he doesn't use it unless you tag him. Oh. Like if you tag him, he goes and checks it within thirty seconds. But if you don't tag him, he never sees it. Your invite-only Instagram? No. no, Josh. That's not yes. how it works, honey. Who has time to peruse Instagram casually? <laughs> so, uh, me... Yeah, because, I was going to say, it's quarantine. 95% of America. I'm not pretty sure only, everyone's on TikTok. Oh, God. We can't go there. Not only am <laughs> I... TikTok. Rediscovering Dune for the first time, right? Because I'm reading it as if with new eyes. I am discovering new realms of nerddom that I haven't previously. I've just always done my own version of this, right? Greg and I played an overly elaborate uh, board game related to Star Wars that he got us. We don't. We own no games. It's not. It's not like we're low key gamers. We own Settlers of Catan or something. We don't. We own none. And he got this Star Wars Outer Rim thing, and it took us like three hours, oh. and I failed miserably. And he was like, actually, this wasn't hard. So I've played an elaborate board game. I've gotten a science fiction-focused Instagram account. I have discovered, and this is what I'm going to talk about, fan art. Wow! What a prolific space in the world that people contribute their passions to. There's so much of it, you all. Soft corner. Josh, Josh, we need to try and get her into it. Oh, get me into to what? Get her into Adventure Zone. Oh, for sure. If you have, I don't know what that is. So it's a podcast. But it's the greatest thing ever. It's a podcast with um, three brothers playing D and D, and with their dad. dad. And it starts out like just sort of a generic sort of like fun but immature jokes, like well, you know, well, three bros playing D. Well, it's because it starts as a joke from their other podcast. Right. Have you heard of My Brother, My Brother, and Me? Really? No. It doesn't matter. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's their fake advice podcast. And at some point, they brought up D&D. None of them, like, knew how to play. So they just decided to, like, have a game of D&D. And then it turned into a thing. Ah. This and is like it gets so epic and good by the end. Uh, it touches it's on. Here. Yeah. Like, literally, it makes me cry. I've listened oh. to it a couple times, and listening to the finale always makes me cry. Oh, you guys. I, I am a noob on all levels. Like, my podcast experience consists of, really, if we're being honest, me listening to the BBC's 10 to 15-year-old series, The History of the World in 100 Objects, where they just, one guy speaks calmly about an object in the British Museum for 15 minutes, and then a oh. flute plays. And then John Luke Picard plays the flute in the background, and, like, oh. and I go to sleep. 
There, there's so many new worlds. This sounds intriguing, but also, is fan art part of your world? I am amazed. Well, so that's, only that's fan art I've ever looked at was from the Adventure Zone. So right. yes, like, I'm not oh, okay. fan art, but there's a huge Adventure Zone fan art because one of the things that's cool about the Adventure Zone, and I might or might not cut all this out, guys. We'll see. But <laughs> one of the things that's cool about the Adventure Zone is they never give physical descriptions of the characters, and they did that specifically so that the fan art people could make them look however they wanted. Right? Uh, They'll describe clothes of the people, but nothing else. So you can make them any race you want. I guess they do gender. Right? And you know partially because there's like an elf, a trans right? character, a non-binary elf dude. What did you say, Josh? Yeah, I mean, they tell you he's an elf. Right. Yeah, you know their D&D species, their approximate age, uh, gender and clothing, but that's it. This is a thing I've been thinking about. So in my foray into social media of the Duneverse, there's sort of three sects that I'm seeing. There are the people who are just super stoked about the movie and nothing else. And it's mostly, who's the young heartthrob? Timothy Timothy Chalamet. Yeah, the Frenchman. So there's people who are just like so heartthrobby over him, and so all of my trying to follow Dune things are just like fan pics of him in other movies, and I don't <laughs> uh-huh. give a shit. Yeah, I don't care help. who he is. I don't know who he is. I don't care who he is. If he's Paul Atreides, fine. And so there's that, and then there's a lot of these like movie posters, like mock-up movie posters mm-hmm. that really just seem like devotionals to the Frenchman. And then there's um. My people who are memes about the 1984 David Lynch version. Uh, there were some great ones with Patrick Stewart. So, like, my perfect intersection is, like, Patrick Stewart Dune meme. And then there's just, like, very original fan art that I am being, I'm feeling very inspired by. I'm feeling like that and then just sort of general science fiction um, epic art is reigniting my delight in these universes, right? That uh, in a moment, pandemic perks, chapter <laughs> two, is that in a moment of extreme confinement and all I do is stare out this one window all day, I, <laughs> I, I mean, it's too real, right? That having access, I because all I do is read books, right? I'm not, I don't do, so having fan art for the first time, I'm like, Oh, right. Like other people's visual interpretations of these worlds are so beautiful and boundless. And I, I'm really appreciating the spaciousness and the inventiveness and the delightfulness of them. And if we can go to some really great artwork, if we can turn to the back cover of the, uh, the Nerd Compendium and talk about the beautiful design of oh. the, the Dune menorahs. Mm-hmm. I love them. <laughs> hey, they're also... Zen Garden. It's Zen Garden Dune Menorahs. Zen Garden Dune Menorahs, yes. I don't have that. I just have this. Yeah. Other side. Back cover. Oh, this. Yeah, yeah the menorahs. The, the, the oh. Zen Garden. Oh, that is satisfying. I'm probably, um, we didn't well, get to rate the top five things at my at home work from home office desk to fidget with, but this is going to be a new one, is tracing the Zen mm. Menorahs. And there is yeah. a poster that has that design, just not in the gold, and it's beautiful also. Oh, huh. that's cool. I might need that for my nerd cave. Yeah. Okay, oh, things so- I want to talk about. Yeah. Um, more Paul is a big, big baby 
is that the master plot to kill Paul, ostensibly, if we take it at its word, was predicated on... So Jessica, you know, she gets pulled away. Then she goes to the weirding room, which is like this very indulgent um, colonialist bathhouse, which is just full of plants, right? It's some special room that could be thousands of people's lives, except it's just a play zone for the rich. Right. Um, and she gets the secret message from whoever was there before her. And it was like the emperor's wife or, some, or concubine or something like that. Oh, no, she learns he actually married her, and she takes note of it. Like, she tries to play it cool, and she's like, no, no, no. It's for the best that he didn't marry me. Like, right? He said if he married me, I'd have to eat dinner with him. Well, so, and, and her talk about it, too, right? She t- And then she talks to him about it, about but, how it was very practical. It would keep the other houses potentially would consider an alliance and... So I will I will also say, as the only one who remembers the book, that having <laughs> to eat as a the having to eat with me comment comes into play later. There's a big uh dinner scene in a few chapters where mm. like several imperial notables that are left on the planet come to dinner. Um and it I'm not saying that it comes into play positively, right? But the, the dinner that Jessica does have to go to is very interesting uh, and very high stakes. And it, it, may, it may even, if anything, play out against Leto's interpretation, right? Like having a Benny Gesserit at this super intense, super political dinner is probably something you want to have most of the time. But uh, it is foreshadowing. Interesting. <clears throat> which, anyway, which is that. So I just. Um, not at all buying that she's totally cool with not being married. And initially, and in a normal reading, I'd be like, oh yeah, no, like it's strategic. She's doing her own thing, blah, blah, blah. But Alec, are you married? Um, we had a wedding. <laughs> that answers that question. Who <laughs> was there? We had a wedding. We never did anything like legal about it. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Uh, Emily and Emily's parents never got married. They come from a long line. Uh, and I guess Emily's sister got married, uh, but she got married like four months Election before her wedding. <laughs> Interesting. I did not expect this. The family, the family tradition of marriage. You can edit all of this out. Well, now I want to keep it, but... Well, I know, yeah. right? Yeah, look. We are all Lady Jessica. I'm not uh, Lady Jessica. I'm married. Yeah, you get married, married. <laughs> I'm an emperor. <laughs> no one wants a strategic alliance with you, Josh. It's fine. Oh! oh. Oh, no, so, the lady, Margot Fenring, sorry, I was trying to see well, they may why, but they're not going to get it. Margot Fenring appears later in the book. I think she's even at the uh, fancy dinner scene that I was describing. Mm-hmm. She's the one who left the note in the garden, in the weird. Oh, so we meet her later. Okay, so what I wanted to say about this is in her note, she says something like, a bedroom was designed to attract Paul. And then I, I was thinking about it, and really, it's just a small room with a headboard with some fishies and some 
trees on it. Like that's, that's the trap that ensnares the grave. <laughs> <laughs> like, ooh, it's fishies. Wishes were fishes. <laughs> oh, that's what it was. It was some deep, uh, deep Benny Gesserit myth planting. The old rhyme about if horses were steak. But also, how does no one bat an eye? Like, oh yeah, Polly needed a nap, and so I gave him a high dose sedative. Back to our earlier conversation, like all of that seems fine, which just really, really, y'all makes me want to be an uber wealthy person. I want to be drugged to the gills. I want uppers, downers, inners. Outers. I, I just want to live. Honestly, it gave me like some real rapey vibes. I was like, wait, Paul, the 15 year old was overtired, so you slipped him a Mickey? <laughs> oh, oh, go to sleep. Yeah. yeah, wait a minute. How did we jump straight to hard drugs? <laughs> you know, he's got the, maybe he's the. But maybe you're right. Maybe it's a wealth thing, right? The rich are different from you or I. Yeah, they can medicate themselves to happiness. R.I.P. Prince. R.I.P. Just so many people. Whitney. Gosh, y'all, we have been watching unintentionally. Like, it's a thing we've fallen into. Who's who's the guy in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and um, the bodyguard and the cup? Oh, you've been watching Yellowstone. I don't know what that is. Oh. Oh, shit. This is a uh, Lily Sackguy segment. He's in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It's not Kevin. It's Kevin Costner. Costner quarantine. Yeah, we've been doing a Costner quarantine series. So we've sort of fallen into it, and so I I think about Kevin Costner a lot now. But also Whitney Houston, who was tragically uh, yeah. died of addiction in some I mean, ways. You cannot pee. Speaking of movies set in places without drinkable water, you cannot pee into a Mr. Coffee and get Taste Your Choice. What? It's it's from it's a Dana Carvey, Carvey special about and he talks about Ross water reviewing Waterworld. I know that Kevin Costner is in Waterworld. Because in Waterworld, Kevin Costner, I guess, filters his pee for drinking water. Ah. So, uh, and that takes us to still suits, right? Is that, was that the right? When worlds collide. Manufactured by Mr. Poppy. Then worlds collide. All right. So welcome to our next segment of Worlds Collide. Waterworld. Waterworld meets Dune. Which they seem like exact opposites. But in both. Everyone's filtering their pee for drinking water. (laughs) Well, Is that the the future of, what is it, Kaladin? Where do they come from? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, the ocean is a desert, you know? You go out in the middle of the Pacific, there ain't nothing there. They call them, they literally call them deserts. What? Who does? Who say? Well, I'm sure I'm miss, I'm half quoting that term, right? But large parts of trout, real trout, (laughs) sad trout, so many trout. Uh, When you're out in the open ocean and it's very deep, right? The surface water is referred to as a desert because there's no, there's not much oxygen, there's not much, like there's no structure for plant life to grow on. And then you'll get interesting phenomenon, like big old clumps of plastic that are actually huge, um, like beacons of light because they provide shade. Interesting. So if you go under like a plastic island, you'll find tons more fish than you would otherwise in that area of water. 
This actually brings me back to the book because on page 77, this I have been obsessed with uh, the spice as a macro microbiotic agent theory, knowing virtually mm-hmm. nothing about this. Uh, but they're talking about the function of water on arrakis and how if you dig a well that it trickles, mm-hmm. right? And this is following a discussion of when uh, Jessica cuts shut up mapes and she and it mm. really quickly and she's like, oh, this is an adaptive feature of people in a mm-hmm. dry. Yeah, place. that's interesting. Those are thematically similar, although in the end from different sort of opposite causes. But it's definitely super interesting. So. Or they're aesthetically similar. Okay, because I don't. I'm only reading in the moment, Alec. I just, I just like. Well, that's, the, that's what I thought. I don't remember the future of the book. <laughs> this is. <laughs> why don't you start? Why don't you yeah, start with a quote at the beginning of the chapter? This is a podcast only when worlds collide. But does this remind anybody else of the scene in uh, Spaceballs where they watch the video of Spaceballs? <laughs> 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 or ultimately, the Muppet movie when they read the script of the Muppet movie. But yes. I feel like we've got a lot of that coming in. Oh, chapter two. This has nothing to do with what I'm about to say, but UA, UA, UA goes the refrain. A million deaths were not enough for UA. From a child's history of Muadin. <laughs> so there's a double. So we've already read a quote from a child's history. So I guess. Oh, have we? One one less book that she wrote, but. I will say that I've gone about these best since I read this. I don't know a week ago. I've been like a thousand deaths are not a good enough <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, a thousand deaths are not enough for Lily. <laughs> a million deaths. Yeah, yeah, a million deaths. Oh, a million deaths, sorry. So, on page 77 in the Ultimate Nerd Compendium, so they talk about the trickle and the nothing and the wells, can, you know, healing themselves in some ways, in my mind. That's and I don't know who's who's talking, but it says, it's curious, you suspect some living agency when that have shown in the core samples, which brings us back to the spice as a microbiotic agent, right? Like, that this is the planet as Gaia, but also, like, integrated whole. I don't know that I have a lot more to say there, but I, I'm picking up on this in places that I think are exciting and interesting, and I'm excited to see what comes ahead of us, which Alec yeah. already remembers. Well, well, so unfortunately, I don't think that the real answer to that even shows up in this book. God damn it. I think the answer to why the wells don't work is in book two or three. I like that Jess. I like that Jessica said, "Wellington, I'm sorry. Sorry, we brought you into this dangerous place." Because <laughs> um, you could take that two ways. Oh, uh, that's true. Some fine, interesting. I mean, it's interesting. It is interesting how often uh, Herbert's surface level stuff seems very dense or awkward or even obtuse sometimes. But then also he does have these really, really good if you interpret them uh, generously, which I, I obviously in general think you should. These really good mirrorings and turns of phrase, right? And like, like I was saying, all this stuff with Leto being an idiot really pays off in, you know, 100 pages, 150 pages when he absolutely gets his ass handed to him. <laughs> But if you only interpret it in the more, like, 
traditional sense of like depictions of characters, especially at that time, right? Like if you go look at a lead in an Asimov book or something, right? Like uh, then you would not be inclined to interpret Leto quite so generously. So I think that there is a sufficient preponderance of evidence to believe it to be intentional, right? To be like, yes, Paul is, right? Like we talked about that article. Did we talk about this on the show? I don't remember. But you sit around that article about like, Paul should be non-binary. We haven't talked about this. Okay. I mean, I don't know, again, this may be like last week where at the end of the show we had a couple like one-sentence skits, right? But like, yeah, Paul is pretty explicitly and obviously non-binary. Right? Like the... But he... The, Herbert goes through a lot of effort for establishing either the existence of or the belief in a... Binary, in binary gender traits, and then introduces a character, right? And it may be that that was the main purpose, it was just to give him the, the space to introduce this character who very powerfully bridges all of those divides. Right, it's, to me it's such a powerful argument that there's not, there's not that much more to say to that other than like... Yeah. Duh. Like when someone tells you like, oh, this is these are my pronouns, this is my gender, you're like, oh, of course it is. And then when someone drops like, oh, Paul's non binary, you're like, oh, oh my god, of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which That's- I mean is a very good argument in favor of casting Chalamet as him. Right? Who, oh, right, yeah. Who's a very non binary presenting person. Right. Like I don't know anything about their their personal identity, right? I've never interacted with that person, but uh, they are exceptionally pretty. Which I know nothing about that, a, which is why I'm still oh, thinking He's, he's very manner. pretty, right? Which is, in general, he makes, I think, a conscious effort to continue to be pretty, which is a trait that, at least until fairly recently, as a society, we've mostly, except for like certain very conscious outliers associated with femininity. Nice extra leg work there, Alec. <laughs> you really ran the extra lap on that one. <laughs> Forgive me, Jessica said. I did not mean to open an old wound. Are you going to love thought those this animals. fucking nerd over <laughs> His wife was Benny Jesuit. The signs are all over him. And it's obvious the Harkonnens killed her. Here's another poor victim bound to the Atreides by a germ of hate. But this brings me back again. To the conspiracy theory. This is the Alex Jones of Dune podcast, okay? <laughs> is Wanna Wellington dead? I say no. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely in not fact, dead. There's a quote about that in here as well. Read I'm me pretty up. sure. Read I'll me, Josh. This is the Dune spirit. So that might have been when he that might have been when he talked about her in the last chapter. No, I remember it being in this one. It's somewhere. Yeah, yeah, no, but you're right, yeah, there's a point where he's like, oh, I don't even know if she's dead or captured, right? But what if she's not either? What if she's sitting there on a shit lounge eating fucking dates in the Harkonnen Palace because that was the plan that's all along? What I'm that, that's what we were talking about. Yeah, yeah. This has been our my favorite segment, doing spirits. I also don't want us to end without me mentioning that on our page 95, more reasons why Leto's a dick, okay? Yeah, let's keep it going. I mean, 
<laughs> you can pile on the Duke, right? He fucking gets his. Yeah. Um. So Paul's talking to his mom or whatever. When my father is bothered by something you've done, he says, Benny Jesuit, like a swear word. And what is it about me that bothers your father when you argue with him? <laughs> <laughs> the Leto, that he, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's not that he, it's not even that he comes across as a dick. It's that it makes him come across as kind of a dim tool bag. <laughs> right? Like, the, these terms oh! are not kind to him. Y'all, okay, flashback interior when words collide. So my proposal that the Harkonnens should only be read in a Boris and Natasha bad Russian accent. Mm-hmm. Jessica, secret in Harkonnen. Canonical mandate. Yes, as uh, really a, a hired, a purchased wife, right? She is, she's, he sent his, I I don't. I never like the term mail order bride. Like it, it is like very demeaning to the woman involved in it. But that it, that like Jessica kind of fits that mold. Yeah. Right. Except that there is a decent amount of evidence that it was that the selection happened from the other direction. A lot more. Yeah. Right. Here's another quote. In fact, that's actually it's not evidence. It's explicit. But go ahead. Yeah. She says. I think it would have been wiser for us to go renegade, to take ourselves beyond the imperial reach, she said. He saw that she hadn't been listening to him, focused on her words, wondering, yes, why didn't she make him do this? She could make him do virtually anything. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, right. Dune Spiracies. Full circle, Dune Spiracy. And then, and then, and then just moments later, um, he asks her if she can ask, he can ask her a personal question. And he says, of course, you're my friend. You're dot, 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 my friend. <laughs> it's all very so explicit here in the text. So awkward. Yeah, the foreshadowing could not be more. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I do think the other thing, well, I mean, right, but I think from here on out, we're done with the slower introductory chapters. Like, I think some shit happens in every chapter. So, if this is the exposition, what have we learned? We've learned that Paul has many daddies. <laughs> yes. He's a big, big baby. About him. He's a big, moody baby. The Actually, wait a minute. I have an asshole, but that just... That just tied me into a big actual theme of the series, not necessarily of this book. But Paul has many daddies. Paul also, if you think about it, has many mommies, right? He has the whole line of Betty Jesserit behind creating him and putting him where he is. But then one of the really interesting things about, and actually this ties into this book too, but one of the really interesting things about drinking the water of life is that then you literally gain access to the memories and personalities of all of your uh, primogenitors along one gender line. Because of mitochondrial DNA. Uh, no, except that if you had a quiz at Saderac, you can look back and meet all your male relatives. And actually, uh, now that I think about it, for some reason, Alia can hang out with the Baron. So I'm not saying it's internally consistent. <laughs> Okay. All right, so we've uh, 
Mark's a big moody baby. He's got a lot of daddies. We will learn that he has a lot of mommies. We've learned colonialist hubris, right? Mm-hmm. Welcome to Ratchet. Arrakis, bitches. Yeah. We've learned... Yeah, Arrakis don't give a fuck, and the Fremen don't give a fuck so hard that they don't give a fuck about Arrakis. Ooh. Ride or die? Yeah. Uh, we've learned that even, you know... Ooh, mortal enemies. And that, that It's very complicated. You never know who your mortal enemies are, right? They are both a foil, right? They are the... Some, there's some sort of knife metaphor here that extends. Yeah. <laughs> but it's then it's, like, a, it's a real maker. <laughs> and if you really want to talk about things that people have learned, you'd look at the third chapter quote. Many have marked the speed with which Wadib learned the necessities of Arrakis. The Bene Gesserit, of course, know the basis of this speed. For the others, we can say that Wadib learned rapidly because his first training was in how to learn. And the first lesson of all was the basic trust that he could learn. It is shocking to find how many people do not believe they can learn and how many more believe learning to be difficult. Muad'Dib knew that every experience carries its lesson from The Humanity of Muad'Dib by the Princess Arella. Man. There's 742nd book about a guy she hated. (laughs) Speaking of mortal enemies. This is good. This feels complete. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one to end on. King Nerd Josh. You guys have inspired me. <laughs>